welcome to Battlefield Next. My name is Major Jason Coffey. Before we get started with this episode, let's do some housekeeping. The views expressed on the podcast are the views of the participants and do not necessarily represent those of the Judge Advocate General's Legal Center and School, the U.S. Army, the Department of Defense, or any other agency of the U.S. government. Today's episode is an interview of Colonel Retired Donna Wright, a retired U.S. Army Judge Advocate whose primary area of practice was in military justice and specifically as a military judge. On today's episode, Colonel Wright and I discuss her background, her experiences as a member of the first co-ed class at West Point, her early Army career, her career in the JAG Corps, her life after the Army, and the role that mentorship played in her career. We join the episode already in progress. Good morning, ma'am. How are you today? Good. How are you? I'm doing well. Thank you for joining us today. I'd kind of like to go into your background. Uh, where are you from, ma'am? Uh, I grew up on Long Island in a town called Merrick, which is pretty close to Jones Beach, um, and attended Catholic schools uh, all through grade school and high school. And how did you come to find out about the U.S. Military Academy at West Point? So when I was a senior in high school, I was looking at a lot of different colleges. I knew I wanted to go away to school. And my dad was reading the paper one day in the fall of my senior year. And he came across an article that said that uh, West Point, uh, well, that the service academies had recently were just about to admit their first class of women. And West Point in particular, because that was close by to us, uh, was looking for girls, high school gals who had good grades and had participated in sports. And my dad said to me, well, that's you. And I kind of said, well, what's West Point? And he explained to me what West Point was. And um, my dad had been enlisted during World War II. And he didn't talk a all that much about his experiences. He had not seen combat, but he did always uh, indicate that in his opinion, if you were going into the military, life as an officer was much preferred to life as an enlisted person. And so then he started to describe to me West Point and what a great education it is. And when you graduate, you come out as an officer. And what was your experience as a member of that first class, ma'am? So that was challenging. So every, the whole West Point experience is challenging, obviously, for everyone, especially plebe year, because at the time I attended, by that time, physical hazing was pretty much over with. They, they no longer sanctioned physical hazing anymore, but there was still a lot of mental and verbal harassment. And being in the first class with women, there was a lot of that. At least in my experience, it seemed that the upperclassmen were kind of divided into thirds. So a third of the upperclassmen were antagonistic towards the presence of women at the academy and were pretty vocal about it and went out of their way to make life more miserable for us women plebes than it was even for our classmates. And about a third of the upperclassmen were kind of neutral and just kind of more concerned with getting through uh, surviving West Point on their own. And then I think about a third of the upperclassmen were supportive, uh, maybe not actively supportive, but 
again, didn't go out of their way to, to harass us any more than they harassed our male classmates. Did this generally get better as you moved up in years? Yeah, absolutely. So plebe year for everybody is the worst. You're, you know, the lowest rung on the ladder. You really can't talk back to upperclassmen. You do whatever they're told, you're told to do. And then you have a lot of demands on your time, which although those demands on your time last all four years, when you're uh, a plebe, you have these additional duties, you're delivering laundry, you're delivering newspaper, you're delivering mail, at least back in the day, back, back then, not so much anymore. So you had a lot of time demands. As you move up, life gets a little more comfortable because at least your sophomore year, then the upperclassmen kind of leave you alone and you're kind of in kind of no man's land. You're, you're kind of just trying to concentrate on your academics, which also are pretty challenging the whole time. But especially, I would say, sophomore year, academics are very challenging. Um, and then when you get to be a, a junior, you're in some kind of a leadership position. And again, as a, a first-classman or a senior, you're definitely in a leadership position. And then you're kind of looking forward to getting commissioned. Um, and life is a lot better. So each year it gets a little better. You get more privileges, you get more free time, um, a little more time to leave the academy. As a, as a plebe, we weren't allowed to leave until Christmas break. Uh, whereas as sophomores, I think we're allowed a couple of weekends a semester and then it increased until as a senior, we were allowed to leave every weekend as long as our grades were passing. And at the end of your time at West Point, you branched MI or military intelligence, ma'am. Can you tell us what your career path was after that? So I selected military intelligence in part because I knew uh, they had women well integrated into that branch. And I was looking for a branch where I would not be as much of a trailblazer as I was at West Point. So I avoided branches like field artillery and air defense artillery that were did have some slots open to women at the time. Obviously, infantry and armor were not open to women then. So I selected MI because it looked interesting. And again, I knew women were well integrated into the branch. So after attending uh, the officer basic course for MI at Fort Huachuca, which took about five months, and also attending airborne school, which at West Point, pretty much everybody goes airborne if you're at all physically fit. You either go as a cadet or you go right at, after graduation. So I went after graduation, then went to OBC, and then I went to Fort Hood, Texas, where I served with the 504th MI group for about two and a half years. That was in support of three corps. Um, I did a variety of typical lieutenant jobs. I worked in the S3 shop. I was a headquarters and service company executive officer where I ran the mess hall kind of had overall supervisory authority over the motor pool, a consolidated motor pool. I had uh, the arms room on, under me, the supply sergeant, and all the headaches that go along with that. And then uh, my third and final job in that unit was a, um, as a tactical reconnaissance officer, kind of coordinating uh, Air Force recon assets with the product that came to us at three Corps for dissemination out to the, to the units that were part of three Corps that used that intelligence. 
what was your impression of the Army, and how did you feel about being in military intelligence? My experience at Fort Hood, I enjoyed the Army very much. I enjoyed the camaraderie. There were lots of lieutenants at Fort Hood. Had a great social life. Uh, I was still single then. Military intelligence, I served with some really good officers. But overall, I did not see military intelligence as a long-term career for me. I think partly because I was at Fort Hood, military intelligence in the unit I was in, there was a lot of what we call dog and pony shows in the, this, at this period of time, early 80s. We didn't really have that much of a real-life mission. And when I looked at what the senior officers that I served with were doing, I just didn't see myself doing that 15 or 20 years down the road. There was one incident in particular that stands out in my mind. At the time, I was the XO of the headquarters company, and we owned, we had responsibility for the motor pool. So it was a consolidated motor pool. And my battalion XO, who was a major at the time, on a Friday night, one time it was about 5, 5.30, I was still in the office, and he called me, and he said he had just arrived home, and uh, he had driven past the motor pool, and some of the Jeeps were not lined up properly and I needed to make sure that got corrected before I went home for the weekend and I just said to myself I I can't see doing this as a major 15 years into my career um, so I just although I really enjoyed the army I just did not see myself staying in MI at least in that kind of a tactical unit for a career. Did you find out about the funded legal education program, ma'am? Well, that's, that's an interesting story. So as a lieutenant, one of my jobs, as I said, was serving in an S3 shop. And one of the NCOs I worked with had been an officer. And back then, this was quite common, actually, had been an officer in Vietnam. And then after Vietnam in the post-war drawdown, several of them were riffed. And this individual had the option at least to get his 20 years in by reverting to enlisted status. So he was started out enlisted, became an officer in Vietnam, and then was back to being an enlisted guy. And he was a staff sergeant. And one day he dropped a, a daily bulletin by my desk. And back in those days, of course, it's pre-internet. We used to have a daily bulletin that had all kinds of announcements about what was going on on post. And in this daily bulletin, it talked, it had a little blurb about the funded legal education program. So I looked into this and discovered that the Army would pay me to go to law school, and then I would come out as a judge advocate. And I thought this sounded like a great idea. So I applied for the program. My first year, I was not selected. And when I talked to the JAG up at Three Corps headquarters, who was the point of contact for the program, he said he thought it was because I only had, at the time, maybe, I think, one OER. And he said, you need to have a couple more OERs in your records so they have something more to go on than just your grades from undergraduate. And he really encouraged me to apply again. So I applied the next year and was, fortunately, I was selected and ended up going to Villanova University because I wanted to get back on the East Coast, being from New York originally. Fort Hood was a long way from home and I just wanted to get back to the East Coast and um, 
Villanova was basically my first choice of the schools I was admitted to. <laughs> and where did you go after you graduated from Villanova, ma'am? After Villanova, while, while there, we were sent a dream sheet. And although Fort Knox, Kentucky wasn't very high on my dream sheet as a flat, it's not like we had a whole lot of choice. So I ended up at Fort Knox, Kentucky. Um, so I got there, kind of signed in, spent, I think, maybe a couple of months there. This was right after passing the bar. And then I went off to my basic course in Charlottesville. Um, and of course, we had the, the Fort Lee phase and then Charlottesville that I came back and I was put in administrative law. So all through law school and up to this point, all I really wanted to do was prim law. I wanted to get in the courtroom as quick as I could, but like everything else, when you get somewhere, when you get to a new assignment in the JAG court, at least your first assignment, there's lots of people ahead of you also trying to get trial counsel or defense counsel slots. So I had to wait a bit and I waited about 18 months and then in what I thought was a, a kind of a masterful career move on my part, I called up branch or PPTO to get a slot to cast cube because by this time I was probably like a mid to senior level captain and I needed to get cast cube done before I knew before I was considered for major. So I got a cast cube slot and then I went to my deputy and I told him they want me to go to cast cube. And then he said, okay, so then that's a good break. When you come back, you can be a trial counsel. And that was, had been in the back of my mind that that would be a good breaking point. And it was. Uh, and then I spent two years as a trial counsel at Fort Knox, the majority of that time as the trial counsel for the 194th Separate Armor Brigade, which at that time was pretty much like a brigade judge advocate position. We didn't call, they didn't call it brigade judge advocates at the time, but I pretty much provided all the legal advice to this unit. Um, and I had my own office down at the brigade, which was unusual. Other than that, all the trial counsel were up at the OSJA, but I had my own office down in the brigade and had several legal specialists, legal clerks working for me in the brigade. Uh, in our brigade judge advocate office. And then I had legal clerks down at each one of the battalions and we had eight battalions. So it was the best, in my opinion, that was the best trial counsel job at Fort Knox at the time. When you were a trial counsel at Fort Knox, there was a, there was a judge, Colonel Bird Clervy. Um, and you stated that before when we talked that he was important in your career and eventually selected you to be a judge. Can you talk about that? Right. So he was one of two judges I practiced before. The first judge was a guy named uh, Herb Greve, who was notorious for being very much an old school judge. I'm not sure he'd even survive in today's environment because he could be fairly verbally abusive to counsel. Fortunately, I only had a couple of cases in front of him. And then the majority of my time, I practiced in front of a guy named Colonel Bird Clervy, a awesome judge. He was a judge for a long time, very even tempered, very helpful, would do bridging the gap afterwards and kind of explain what we did wrong. Very rarely did he lose his temper and just a, a great guy to practice in front of. 
And I practiced in front of him for almost two years. So I had a lot of cases with him. And then later on, when in my career, uh, when I got promoted to Lieutenant Colonel, he sought me out and asked if I wanted to be a trial judge. And at the time he was the chief trial judge. And I'm sure to this day, if I hadn't known Colonel Clervy, I'm not sure, but I, I think much less likely that I would have gone on the path I did because I'm not sure I would have gotten to be a, a judge had I not had this positive and early relationship with Colonel Clervy. I believe next in your career path, ma'am, you went to the graduate course and then you were at a decision point on what did you want to, what you wanted to do after the graduate course. Could you talk about that? So after uh, my first assignment at Fort Knox, it was time to go to the graduate course, had a great time with the graduate course. Most of my graduate course classmates were trying to either stay on the faculty or at the JAD school or go to DC. Well, with only, but a lot of them obviously had had more than one assignment because the vast majority of folks had at least two assignments, some three out in the field. And at that time, I felt like I still didn't have a real diverse practice yet in the JAG Corps. So I wanted to go back to the field. And one of the places I had always wanted to get stationed at was Hawaii. And there were several jobs there, uh, which I, put on my dream sheet and ended up getting the slot as the senior defense counsel in Hawaii. And I remember at the time, I was still somewhat in the mindset that I really wanted to be the chief of justice because I enjoyed being a trial counsel. But several of my classmates who had been in TDS told me I was gonna love TDS. And that is in fact what happened. So I got to Hawaii. I was the senior defense counsel. I had three captains working for me. I had a civilian and then I had a legal specialist and I absolutely loved it. We had a great shop, a lot of camaraderie because you know it's a small defense shop and you're David against Goliath. We had a lot of success and I enjoyed it so much that I decided to spend the third year in that job. Even though People were advising me not to spend more than two years as the SDC at that point, because at that point I was a major. So I had gotten promoted to major shortly after arriving in Hawaii, but uh, I really wanted to spend the third year in Hawaii. And the only lateral move that I would have been able to make would be to be the chief of ad law in Hawaii. And that just really did not appeal to me. So I decided to spend three years as the SDC in Hawaii, even though, and probably to this day, I'm not sure that's recommended, but it worked out for me. And from there, uh, the reason I think it was a positive for me is because then, because I had spent three years as an SDC, people at the JAG school and the crim law department were looking for someone to come in from the field. They had the year I went to the JAG, so I went to my next assignment, which was the JAG school. Now, the year I went to the JAG school, they had four openings for new instructors, and they took three of them out of the grad course, but they wanted a little bit of balance, and they wanted to take somebody from the field. And since I was just coming out of three years as a senior defense counsel, it was kind of a natural transition 
for me to go to the jazz school. And one of the folks that I had worked with in Hawaii who had been, I believe he had been chief of ad law was Robert Burrell. And Robert at this point was at the JAG school as the uh, deputy head of the crim law department. So again, you kind of see how relationships you make early in your career can kind of impact later in your career. And again, Robert and I had a previous relationship from working together at, at Schofield Barracks in Hawaii. And then I ended up working with him in crim law when he was the deputy and I was one of the new instructors. And how was your time as a member of the faculty of crim law? So being on the faculty, I think even to this day, it's considered a great job. It was a lot of fun. It was great being around a group of peers who were also interested in crim law because there were like eight or nine of us in the crim law department. And it was great talking about cases that were going on in the, in the civilian sector. I remember at the time the OJ Simpson trial was going on and we would talk about it every morning. So that was great, but it was also very challenging. And I think if, if I were going to advise judge advocates who are considering staying on, the fa staying on as faculty at the JAG school, it's a great opportunity to get in-depth knowledge and research into a particular area of the law. It's great experience getting up in a group of people, getting in front of a group of people and teaching your classes. I think it develops your confidence in speaking in front of large groups, but I also think it's extremely challenging. And one of the challenges for me was you, you often, especially when you're teaching the grad course, you are going to get students who have more experience in a particular area than you do. And you need to be able to deal with that and be able to respond. And so that for me was somewhat of a challenge because there were certainly folks in that class who had tried bigger cases, had more experience, especially as I recall, some of the Marine judge advocates. And so it was, it was challenging and it was also a lot of work when you're coming out of the field. It's easier to transition to the faculty coming out of the grad course because you're already there and your last few months in the grad course, you're allowed to kind of work on your outlines and the things you're going to be teaching as a faculty member. When you're coming in out of the field, it's just like any new assignment, you kind of hit the ground running and it's a little bit tougher to get up to speed. So while I would certainly encourage folks to look into uh, serving on the faculty, it's a great opportunity to get to know a lot of other JAGs. It's fun having people come through the short courses and running into people you've met earlier in your career and seeing your friends, but it's also challenging. And so I'll leave it at that. It's also very challenging in my opinion, and you really have to be expert in your field. And ma'am, while you are on faculty, you were selected for Lieutenant Colonel. What came next in your career path? So when I was selected for promotion to Lieutenant Colonel, Colonel Clervy was uh, coincidentally at the JAG school for some short course. And at the time, he, by this time, he had become the chief trial judge. 
and he approached me and asked me if I wanted to be a judge. And that had been kind of in the back of my mind for some time, but I was thrilled that he asked me and I jumped on that. I said, absolutely. And so we agreed that after the end of my three years on the faculty, I would go to the bench, assuming that PPTO blessed off on that. So uh, then from the school, I was headed to, I ended up getting a judge slot in Germany and I had never served in Germany. And so that was a great assignment, I thought. But one thing I'll note just in kind of the notion that not all the career advice you get is sound advice. I remember one of the senior officers at the JAG school telling me that he thought it was a bad idea for me to go from the faculty to a trial judge slot. He thought a more conventional career choice would be go to go out to be a deputy SJA because being at the JAG school is kind of like being in DC and it's, it's not really the field, which I agree, it's definitely not the field, but I just thought being a trial judge was, had been a dream of mine I thought I was more value added to the JAG Corps as a trial judge. I thought I could be very good at it because I had, at that, by that point, I had done a lot of crim law. So I knew crim law. I had been a prosecutor. I'd been a defense counsel. And to me, that was the best background to be a judge. So I thanked him for his advice, but told him that I had my heart set on being a judge. So I went to Germany and served for three years there, one year in Mannheim, and then two years in Würzburg. And that was just an incredible experience. Enjoyed every minute of it. I felt so lucky that the JAG Corps had allowed me to be a judge. I learned a lot in those three years. And at that time, I probably had the most influential mentor I had in the JAG Corps. And that was a guy named Colonel Peter Brownback who was, um, at that time, my boss in Germany. When we talked before, ma'am, you said that Colonel Brownback is who you learned how to be a judge from. Can you talk about that, ma'am? Yes, so when I got to Germany, obviously I was, I had just recently, just completed the military judges course and they teach you the law, but there's still, you have so much to learn about being a judge. And Colonel Brownback was very hands-on, supervisor, which I loved. It was great for me. So he kind of taught me the importance of managing a docket, of getting counsel into court, of your post-trial responsibilities, how those have to be done efficiently and quickly, and just threw me right into the, the fire. I remember, I think it was maybe the third day I was in Germany. He said, you're going to take this case, you're going to be the judge. And it was a perfect case for a brand new judge. I'll never forget, it was a straight special court martial, which we didn't do a lot of. And I'm sure you don't do a lot of them now either. So it was a straight special, meaning even a bad conduct discharge couldn't be a judge, but it was a turn down Article 15. And my very first case as a military judge, the accused went judge alone, and I acquitted him. And it was 
uh, a great learning experience. Colonel Brownback was there. He was kind of just, I think he sat in the courtroom part of the time and then we'd go into chambers and we'd talk a little bit, but he didn't tell me what to do. He let me handle it on my own. And it was a great experience. And I couldn't believe I was handling a case on my own three days after arriving in Germany. Colonel Brownback used to say a judge's greatest resource is the phone. And I would pick, I would frequently pick up the phone and talk things through to him. He was very influential in my development as a judge. And to this day, he's a good friend of mine. And after the conclusion of your tour in Germany, ma'am, where did you go next? So after, so after three years as a judge in Germany, by this time, I was nearing the promotion zone for Colonel and felt as though I still needed to be an SJA. And that had also been sort of in the back of my mind throughout my career that SJA was also another job I wanted to do. So, of course, you go through the negotiation process with PPTO, as I'm sure it's still the case today. And to my disappointment, I was basically told I wasn't competitive for a division SJA job. So of the SJA jobs that were available to me, I chose, I asked for Fort Monmouth. I was sent to Fort Monmouth, which was still open at the time. It was CECOM and Fort Monmouth Communications Electronics Command. And I arrived there and that was kind of, a shock because it was a very different environment. It was part of Army Materiel Command. I had never served in AMC. I had, obviously I'd worked with civilians, but there the SJA worked for the chief counsel who was an SES. Um, and that was a very different environment. And I had a small SJA shop. So it was different, but I learned a lot. I was at the SJA at Fort Monmouth. I was actually TDY when 9-11 happened. I had to rush back to post because we were about 25, 30 miles from ground zero. So I learned a lot about dealing with civilians there, high-ranking civilians. I worked for two very positive commanding generals there, especially the second one, General Bill Russ, who ended up promoting me to colonel. Um, and just had a very good experience there. But I also learned during that two years that I very much missed being on the bench. And at the end of my two years, wanted to get back to the judiciary. So I reached out to the then chief trial judge, who was Denise Fowle. I said, I'm interested in getting back to the bench. And um, she made that happen. And then during that time, I got promoted to colonel. Um, and again, I think my job at, as SJA at Fort Monmouth helped diversify my career a little bit and certainly helped me get promoted to 06. When you went back to the judiciary, ma'am, what was the difference between when you first set, got on the bench and then when you returned to the bench, ma'am? So when I returned to the bench, I had been out of prim law for a couple of years, but it did not take me long to get back up to speed. I had sort of always maintained my kind of staying up to date with the cases that came out. 
And I also, I went through the judge's course again, which was also a, a good thing. And it just seemed a world of difference. I was a lot more confident as soon as I got back on the bench, which at this point was at Fort Carson, Colorado, pretty busy jurisdiction again. It, it did not take me long and I just felt a lot more comfortable and it was great being back on the bench. I went TDY a lot. I was going every month or so. I was going free, frequently to um, Fort Sill and that was a lot of fun as well. Just kind of going back to the same post all the time. I, the council there, we would have a trial week and I've noticed something about when a post does not have its own judge, when they have the judge coming in for a, for a court term, it seems like the council are a lot more organized and more prepared. When you're ju judge at an installation and council know they can delay the case a week or delay a case two weeks, it seems like sometimes they get a little complacent. When I would go TDY to some of these other places, like I would go to Fort Polk, Fort Sill, I went a few times to Fort Riley, Kansas, it seemed like the council were more prepared because they knew that if the case didn't get tried that week, it might be another month or another six weeks before a judge was back there. And most judges do not look kindly at a one month continuance. So I just throw that out there, but really enjoyed being back on the bench and was quite busy at Fort Carson. And then from Fort Carson, I went to Fort um, Stewart, Georgia. Again, another busy installation. And during this time, we have units deploying to Iraq, Afghanistan. So trying to manage dockets. Uh, with that going on, that was obviously a challenge for counsel and for the judge. But again, really enjoyed my experiences at both places. And then uh, the judiciary, the chief trial judge, who at this point was still um, Colonel Val, called me up and said that they were putting a judge back in Hawaii. So from the time I left Hawaii in 1994, the judge there retired. They had not had a resident judge for many years, and they were putting a judge back there full time, and I was luck lucky enough to get that slot, so I went back to Hawaii in 2007 for my second assignment there, and then that was going to take me up to my retirement in 2010. Ma'am, what year did you retire? So I retired in 2010. Uh, about two months shy of my mandatory 30-year retirement date. And upon ret retirement from active duty, my husband and I really wanted to stay in Hawaii. I was not ready to be fully retired yet. So I accepted a position as a civilian attorney handling administrative law for the Army at uh, Schofield Barracks. So basically, I went from being a judge one day to starting work the next day as a GS civilian attorney, worked with a lot of young captains. It was fun. I found it interesting. I got to know a lot of people at Schofield Barracks, even though I'd been working there, well, across the street, actually, because my office as a judge had been at Wheeler uh, Army Airfield. 
which is across the street from Schofield. But as a judge, you get somewhat isolated. So I knew military leaders. I knew, you know, 06s and battalion commanders who had served as court members. But I didn't know really any of the civilians who, who ran most of the installation. As an administrative law attorney, as a civilian, I got to know all those folks. I went to a lot of the meetings, did all kinds of stuff. The FACMIT, the Family Advocacy Case Management Team, dealt with all kinds of issues with MWR, dealt with the civilian personnel folks, and did that for a couple of years. And then they were talking about reductions in the civilian workforce. So I began to look at other positions and found a position with the US Army Corps of Engineers at Fort Chapter, which was about 20 minutes down the road. And at that point, went to work for the Corps of Engineers. And that kind of kicked off what I call my second mini career, ended up really enjoying working for the Corps of Engineers. And I was working with the Pacific Ocean Division, which in, with the Corps, that's kind of like their regional headquarters. So uh, the Pacific Ocean Division had four districts underneath them. And we had divisions in Honolulu, Alaska, Korea, and Japan. So as a function of that job, I got to do a little more travel, which I had kind of been away from since uh, leaving active duty and um, just worked with great people in the Corps of Engineers. And for those judge advocates who discover that they find that active duty is not the way to go, if you are looking for civilian attorney in a federal government position, I highly encourage folks to look into the Army Corps of Engineers because to me, they are a great top-notch organization for attorneys and they have lots of potential to move up the ladder. So I'll just put that plug out there for uh, the Corps. Eventually, you and your husband decided that you wanted to return to the continental United States and you ended up retiring again. What are you doing these days? So, uh, yes, so I stopped working entirely in 2017. My husband and I were ready to leave Hawaii after living there for the last the previous 10 years. We ended up moving to Florida where we live in an over 55 community, which we just love. Lots to do here in this community. It's probably the biggest uh, retirement community in the country. But in addition to all the uh, mainly involved in a lot of sports, primarily golf and softball, but I'm also doing some part-time work. Um, again, Former JAG contacts came, come into play. One of the folks who I was in the grad course with, who was the first Air Force judge advocate to attend the graduate course at the JAG school, who went on to a career as an administrative law judge for the Social Security Administration, approached me after he retired from his position as an ALJ. He has started up a partnership and we provide investigative and fact-finding services to colleges and other corporations, as well as uh, municipalities. And we do things like background investigations for colleges who are hiring prominent head coaches. 
We also do um, Title IX sexual assault hearings at colleges. I've, quite, I've done quite a few of those. And so that really draws on my experience as a judge. And the most recent ones I've done in December, I felt like I was back in the courtroom again. So that's been a lot of fun. And again, I can do it on a part-time basis. So I can turn down projects if I want, and I can accept projects if I want. Um, and so that really works out for me. Ma'am, what role did mentorship play in your career? Well, I've talked a little bit about Colonel Brownback, and certainly he was definitely one of the most significant mentors I had in my career. Uh, he was very hands-on, and I would never hesitate to ask him questions about career or the, my job as a judge. But throughout my career, I think I had other mentors that I would never hesitate to call up and ask their advice on um, the next job or in doing a particular job. Uh, I remember as a senior defense counsel, uh, one of my RDCs had a very similar to career to me. He was also a West Point FLEP. He ended up retiring as a lieutenant colonel, but he was very influential when I was trying to decide what my next job should be after serving as a senior defense counsel for three years. He had taught at the JAG school. And so when the position came up at the JAG school, I talked to him a lot about that because I also thought I needed to go to DC to get a little more visibility um, after having been so many years in uh, the field and having been out in Hawaii. A lot of the JAG Corps as a lot of Judge Advocates know is getting to know senior ranking people and getting your name known. So I was also looking at trying to go to uh, litigation division in DC. So I talked a lot with my RDC at the time and also the former staff judge advocate in Hawaii was a guy named Tim Nakarado. He was the chief of the litigation division and I had talked to him about coming to work for him so just maintaining good contacts with folks you work with, even if it's across the aisle. So Colonel Nakarado had been the SJA when I was the senior defense counsel, but we always had a very professional relationship. He respected the job that I did and the job my folks did. And so mentors were important, even though for me, the one true mentor I had came later on, but I had lots of informal mentors. And as a judge, I like to think that I mentored some of the captains and majors who practiced before me. I know as a judge, I was definitely not the most laid back judge. I think I held counsel to a, a pretty high standard, but I hope that the counsel who practiced in front of me learned from that and um, learn from me. And I believe that based on the contacts I have with many of the council who practiced before me, I did have a positive impact on their practice of military justice. And one thing I'll leave is one of the, the most satisfying things to me nowadays as you know, an old timer who's retired is seeing council who practiced before me now 
served as judges, either in the civilian sector or in the military. That is just, it's very encouraging to me. And several of the, the counsel I knew who were excellent counsel are now uh, serving as judges themselves. And while that makes me feel old, it's also rather satisfying um, that their experience in the courtroom was so positive that they wanted to move on and do it at the next level. What advice would you have for younger judge advocates seeking out formal mentorships? I would say don't be afraid to ask someone to be a mentor. Don't be afraid to reach out to folks you've either worked for or worked with as they go on to other assignments and you go to your next assignment. I think nowadays with social media, I think it's easier to do that um, with email, with text messages, with, with social media. It's, it's certainly easier than it was in my day, but I think I also could have done a better job maybe of picking up the phone and asking folks that I worked for or worked with for their advice on jobs that I was considering or jobs that I was gonna take or how to handle a certain situation. So I would encourage judge advocates to just on their own seek that out. And trust me, if somebody doesn't wanna to talk to you, they're gonna make that clear. But I think most judge advocates are going to be flattered that a junior judge advocate reaches out to them. And then if there are formal mentorship programs, which my understanding is there are, then certainly take advantage of those. And for the more senior judge advocates, I would encourage them to get involved in those as mentors. Because believe it or not, even if my career, I, I sort of think my career was a little unconventional because I spent so long as a trial judge. Um, I spent about 11 years as a trial judge. But even for those of us with less conventional careers, I think we have a lot to offer to junior judge advocates on, on how to navigate your career, whether it's more conventional with the more typical deputy SJA, SJA jobs, or the a little less conventional trial judge career path. Well, ma'am, thanks for talking to us this morning. Um, we'd like to conclude the podcast by asking our guests if they have book recommendations. Do you have any recommendations for us? I do have a couple of book rec recommendations. And the nice thing about being retired is you have a whole lot more time to engage in your favorite hobbies, which for me, one of them is, is reading. So a few of the books that I would recommend, uh, one book in particular is called Ashley's War by Gail Lemon. And that's a book about the creation of and training of cultural support teams for use in Afghanistan. I think it's of particular interest to women judge advocates, but, but also to really to anyone. It talks about the, the rigorous evaluation program these ladies went through. And the book is named after Lieutenant Ashley White, who um, lost her life while serving as a, a CST leader uh, working with special operations in Afghanistan. Another book that I found very interesting, maybe because it has, it's so close to where I live, it's called Devil in the Grove 
by Gilbert King, and it won a Pulitzer Prize in 2013. That's a book about the Groveland Four, which some people may be familiar with. The Groveland Four were four black young men who were falsely accused of raping a white woman in Groveland, Florida. And Groveland, Florida happens to be in Lake County, which is the county I currently live in. Lake County had a long tradition of KKK activity, had a very racist sheriff for many years. Um, and this book, Devil in the Grove, is all about the Groveland 4 case, as well as Thurgood Marshall's role in it. Uh, Thurgood Marshall served as a defense counsel for these men. And so the book goes back and forth between discussing Marshall's early career as well as the case itself. But a very interesting case uh, story about an interesting case. And then the last book um, I'll mention is uh, more on the lines of a, a bi biographical book, The Wright Brothers by David McCullough. Um, McCullough, of course, has written several books, including Truman and John Adams. He writes a book about the Wright Brothers. And even though I share the same last name with these guys, I really didn't know a lot about their lives. And so the book kind of takes you from the time they were growing up as boys to their invention and their experiences in Kitty Hawk, and then how they uh, market the plane to various entities. And it's very interesting and uh, not, not a lengthy read and not dense at all. So the Wright Brothers by McCullough, I would encourage anyone to read, it's very interesting gives you a lot of the backstory about how they came to invent their plane. They're pretty unassuming lives. Two very interesting guys, very much family men, both bachelors throughout their lives. So a good read. Well, ma'am, thank you for meeting with us today. Well, thank you for having me. That's it for the episode. For more information related to FCD, you can follow us on Twitter at JagFCD or by visiting our webpage. Finally, if you like what you hear, please leave us a review on iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, or your favorite podcast app. While this is a podcast created by U.S. Army Judge Advocates from the Future Concepts Directorate, our goal is to reach other judge advocates and lawyers across the DOD, law students, and members of academia. Your reviews help make this possible.